welcome to the Naked Podcaster. Get ready to hear stories of someone brave enough to bear it all. Let's get naked. Welcome to the Naked Podcaster. I'm Jen Taylor, and today I'm so excited. I'm with Dwayne Clayton. Dwayne, how are you? I'm great. Thank you. And people are probably going to hear that you're in Canada because I can hear the accent. I was raised on the East Coast by the Canadian border, and I've been through Calgary where you're at. Yeah. Yeah, great. Well, uh, as, as we talked a little bit earlier, we have snow now already, so I've been shoveling snow for a, about a week. That's Well, and we're recording as of October 23rd. That is a devastating statement. <laughs> yeah, it was to me too. Next yeah. week's supposed to be a little better, so we'll hope for that. That's good. So if anybody hears the accent, that's where it's coming from. It's coming from Calgary. I am so excited about this because I always know just enough about my guests to be very, very, very curious. And I'm definitely very, very curious. So let's jump in and talk about DwayneClayton.com. Everything will be in the show notes for people to find you. But tell me about your website. Um, yeah, well, my website, I guess, serves a couple of purposes. One is so people can get to know me and my background. Um, so I was a police officer and a paramedic for 40 years in Calgary and area. And so I guess that's what's given me the information to write. So kind of like write what you know. Um, so you get to know me on the website. There's a couple of pictures of me as a, as a cop when I was a 19-year-old uh, puppy that they never should have given a gun to. Um, and then and through my career as, as a paramedic, which was most of my career. And then I guess the second thing is, is uh, showcasing my books. Uh, I mean, I love my books and I'm, I'm excited to show them to people and tell people about them. I think it's interesting on your website. Yes. And you're so cute, this 19 year old, <laughs> <laughs> but you talk about how people are always happy to see the paramedics, but not always happy to see a cop, which is really sad to me, but probably very, very, very true. I have never had a negative experience with a police officer, but I, I mean, so that's a good thing, I guess, mm -hmm. but you switched, you did police and EMT and paramedic. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, I mean, I, I tell the story that, you know, that, that people were nicer to paramedics, happier to see paramedics. Most of the interactions as a police officer were fine too. It was, it was a different, different generation, a different time though. And, mm -hmm. I, you know, um, I started when I, in 1978. Yeah. And actually yesterday I had lunch with uh, three of my, my police academy classmates and, and we were just talking about that. And at that time, there there was respect for the police, and it went both ways. I don't ever remember going to work fearing for my life. I was excited to go to work, and uh, some of the guys I talk to now here in Canada um, go to work when they you know they kiss their wife goodbye, they hug their kids. They're truly wondering if that was the that's the last time it's going to happen because things have changed so much on the street for, for the police. Yeah, that's true. I grew up in the seventies and it is a much different world now and hard. It's hard now. Uh, we thought it was then, but it's different hard. I think now Yeah. you do some other really incredible things. You evaluate manuscripts. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So I, um, I have a number of people who will, uh, Sometimes they send me a part of a chapter or a chapter and specifically want my advice on either the medical procedures in it or the police procedures in it. And is this what police would do? I have a few others who send me questions just say, hey, I've got the police. They're going to do a search warrant on this place. How would they do it? Or questions like that. So how um, fun is that? I'm happy to answer those questions. And then at writing conferences, I also speak on police and, and uh, paramedic procedures. So I talk about bringing the realism into, into the writing because funny, the things you see on TV that the police or paramedics do is not always what happens. <laughs> oh, really? That's shocking. Because I thought like, for example, Grey's Anatomy, which I've never watched, but that was how hospitals work, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's right. There's always seven doctors available to take care of you. Yeah, Every, I didn't call them right. for a while on uh, what TV and movies gets wrong. And Grey's Anatomy was probably the easiest. <laughs> That's probably why I picked it. I don't really watch, I've, I've, like I said, I've never watched that, but I'm imagining it's completely inaccurate. So that's really great. And I love, this is what I was super curious about is that when I looked at your Amazon site, mm -hmm. I was like, 
there's got to be something wrong. There are these paramedic books and then these book, and like they seem like they have nothing to do with each other. But mm. no, you were like, nope, that's me. Yeah. Yeah. So during my uh, paramedic career, um, I met uh, a doctor in the US. We were at a conference, uh, Brian Bledsoe. And we just hit it off and got talking. And he had put out the first edition of a book called Pre-Hospital Emergency Pharmacology. At that time, I was teaching pharmacology at the school here to the paramedic class. And uh, the guy that he originally wrote the book with was retiring and wasn't interested in continuing. So uh, Brian asked me if I wanted to work with him on it. And I, I jumped at the opportunity. So um, just last year, we published the eighth edition. So it's been going on for, I guess, close to 30, 30 plus years. It's um, in this category for paramedics. It's the number one bestseller in North America and has been, I think, the entire time. It's used in Australia, used in Hong Kong, used in England. So yeah, so that was, that was pretty exciting. And that led into a couple other textbooks. I did, uh, I took uh, two US textbooks for paramedics and just converted them into uh, Canadian language. Um, oh. It's changing, you know, the statistics. So the asthma right, right. in Canada versus the States or trauma and that sort of thing. How much different are they? Um, well, you know, I think generally the idea is that Canada is one-tenth the size in population of the U.S. So if there's 330,000 deaths from uh, asthma, then in Canada, there would be give or take 33,000. It's not right. exact. So I did the research to find out at that period of time, you know, what the exact statistics were. That's great. Um, the systems are a little bit, the laws are a little bit different. So those yeah. were the sorts of things that I, I touched up in, in the books. That That is so fascinating. And your website is great. And you what you said, you touched on speaking. Do you speak predominant? Tell me about what you speak on mostly or where. Uh, the very first time I spoke at a conference, writing conference was in 2010. I really didn't know a lot about writers or 2012. I really didn't know a lot about writers and had never been to a writing conference. And the topic I was speaking on was poison as a murder weapon. And so I went into the room, there was somebody ahead of me and I kind of went into the room was standing at the back. A fellow finished his presentation and then I went up to the front and I got set up and I was looking over my shoulder and I was thinking, well, these people aren't moving along very quickly to go to the next session. And then it was a few minutes before I was to speak. The room was completely full. There was people standing around the walls and people were actually sitting at my feet. I'm a bit of a pacer when I speak and I couldn't even move. There were so many people in the room. And so I, I kind of started my talk with, I didn't realize um, writers were such sick people. Um, and so that has been, um, for the last eight years, my number one talk is poison as a murder weapon. I just did it by a Zoom meeting with the Ottawa, Ontario crime writers. Um, so that's probably the most popular one. Um, I do a couple on street drugs. So hmm. those are popular as well. And then uh, um, the kind of tongue-in-cheek fun one is the what TV and movies gets wrong. And so that usually gets a, a laugh from the audience because everybody, can, as, as you already pointed out, you know, with Grey's Anatomy, right. and you can pick any police show, firefighter show, uh, medical show. Um, what, what, what sometimes I wonder why they're doing that because I worked in all three of those. At one point in time, I was a firefighter for five years. Uh, one place I worked as EMS chief in Airdrie. And, you know, all those careers are phenomenally exciting. So, yeah. They really don't need to be embellished in any way. Now, it's not that every day is high action for 12 hours a day, but there's certainly enough things that are high action that gets your heart pumping and, and gets you excited about work every day without having to sensationalize it too much or, or just do the wrong things. Right. I, that, I think that that's fascinating. I love what people are getting wrong, what things are wrong on TV shows. Because, on yeah, we do. We have a, like, we have a completely skewed image of what things are really like. And you're right. They are exciting. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy to me. I, I, I love how you have diversified. You've taken being an author and your career and it's so unique, the directions that you've gone and how you've done that. I think it's really fantastic. And I want to go see poison as a murder weapon. Not, not for any like personal reason, just, <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the history of poisons is is actually in the sick writer kind of way fascinating. Right. Uh, so yeah. And I, and you, I try to make all my talks fun too. Now, yeah. now Zoom, Zoom makes it difficult though when you're talking so it's you and I can kind of see each other now, but when you've right. got 30 people that are off to the side and I'm just talking to the monitor and I always have jokes and I always have like a far side cartoon or funny yeah. cartoons in there, but everybody's muted. So you kind of tell the joke and then wait seven seconds because you figure that's the appropriate uh, amount of time for them to laugh. And then you continue on with the talk. Uh, I've done the same thing. I speak also. And digital meant that you could get things out to a, a lot more people. It was much easier. And um, so there were a lot of benefits to doing online speaking. I've done two since the pandemic hit through Zoom. And I really love a lot about it, but it is very disconnected from your audience. Oh, yeah. You can't gauge where they're at or get a feeling for the room or anything like that. So yep. It's very, very different. Yeah, yeah. You just have to go off of what worked in the past and what you think people are probably talking about. Yeah, yeah. And I, when I when I do it live, I'm always looking for that one person who's paying attention and nodding and giving me that positive feedback. So I know, okay, they're still awake. That's good. They're nodding. That's even better. We can keep going. I want to jump back in time and that can be anywhere. You grew up in Calgary? I did, yes. Okay, so Calgary forever. Um, Tell me about your childhood and go back to whenever you want to start the story, because definitely reading is going to be super fundamental in this conversation. Yeah, I grew up, grew up in West End, uh, Calgary, a community called Bonas. Actually, when I was born and for the first number of years, it was a town and then was annexed into Calgary. Um, it's a great area. There's a park called Bonas Park. It's a big park right on the river, and it actually plays prominently in my books. So I talk about uh, Bonas and, and, and the park. Um, and my mom, my mom was a reader and I think always was a reader. And some of my earliest memories of, uh, we had a truck and camper and we would go camping. And I remember my sister and I being kind of in, in the bunk over the cab and mom was sitting at the table and, and reading stories to us. And um, I'm not really sure what the first stories she read were, but then it was uh, Bobsy Twins and Hardy Boys. And uh, I also remember that uh, I couldn't watch my favorite TV shows in the mornings. So this was before I started going to school um, until I had done some writing or I had done some reading. And so that, you know, of course, I hated that at the time. And I thought that was horrible. Um, but then pretty soon I was reading um, Hardy Boys on my own. And um, and, and that was that was mom's influence right there. And, and I can't I can't be without a book or a couple of books. And that's been my entire life. And we would go camping for three weeks. And if in those three weeks I ran out of books to read, I was beside myself. I didn't know what to do. And I would reread just because I didn't have anything else. But just just loved reading. So the Hardy Boys graduated into um, you know, Perry Mason, Earl Stanley Gardner. Um, then into the 70s, you know, Joseph Wambaugh was a big influence um, on my writing. Um, he was the kind of the first, well, he was the first writer as an LA detective to write about really what it was like on the street, that it was dark, that it was scary, um, that there were monsters out there. Whereas at that time on TV, it was One Adam 12 and Dragnet and yeah. they were happy shows and they always had happy endings and nobody really got beat up and nobody got shot. And if they fired the gun, they always missed and and that sort of thing, and it was, it was happy. And he kind of changed that. And then with that too, I think his influence was on Hill Street Blues, for those who remember Hill Street Blues in the 80s. And that was a completely different police show that it had the dark side, it had the realism to it. So those all played a role, and I guess in my writing is that I want to be realistic. Um, the banter between the guys or ladies in the car. I mean, you're with, you're with your partner 12, 14 hours a day. You're with them more than you're with anybody else. Your significant other, spouse, kids, you're with your partner a lot. And you know everything about them. And you also know which buttons to push. And when the time comes, you just hammer on that, that button and push it when you can. And there's lots of sarcasm and there's lots of laughs. And then you get the call. And uh, everybody comes together and you got each other's back. And, and then, you know, an hour later, you're, you're you know, I guess it, it's our dark humor somewhat, which 
maybe a little politically incorrect now. People don't understand it. Um, but I guess so over, over my career as a police officer, paramedic, and, and my classmates too that I've talked to, we see things that, that nobody really should see. Yeah. And so we, we have to figure out a way to burn that off. And sometimes it's, it's tough talking specifically about the incident, but you can talk around it. And in that way, you're, you're releasing it, you're letting that stress off, um, certainly not for public consumption, but um, you have to decompress a little bit because it could be as short as two minutes later or two days later, you're right back in the thick of it again, and you've got to have your head clear. And whether that's as a police officer or paramedic, it's, it's the same. You've got to put what happened now behind you and get ready for the next thing that happens. There's a lot more statistics out now about PTSD in those two um, jobs. And because, yeah, we want you there when we need you there. But I, I mean, I know what I've seen, not as a police officer and a paramedic, just in my life, the accidents that I've witnessed or the, the scenes that I've walked onto that I can never forget. And that's, that's just a glimpse of your every day. And so, yeah, there's a lot that's come out. So I think the dark humor is super helpful, super helpful. It doesn't have to be politically correct. You're right. It just needs to decompress you. And um, yeah, and I know that just from the glimpses that I've seen. So, uh, and it's interesting that we don't think about, I, I always thought about my kids, you know, when they go to school, they're spending more time with the teacher during the week than they are with me. So have a good relationship with your kid's teacher, but you with your partner, that is so much more. Yeah. Those are long shifts. You, has there been an experience where you needed a break from a certain partner? Or there was a partner that was tough to be with or around? Um, well, uh, probably in my second year as a police officer, I had a partner who was really tough and he's, uh, he's actually more or less a character in my Brad Coulter series. Um, in the series, his name is Briscoe. So it, it's, it's changed, but he was a real tough guy. And like I said, you know, by then I was a 21 year old, still a puppy with a gun, still yeah. not sure what I was doing. And he was about a 17 year veteran. So he'd seen it all, he'd done it all, and I had to prove myself. And he was so hard on me that, um, you know, not, not that I cried, but maybe I got close sometimes because he really was hard on me. And until I proved myself on one particular call, um, he didn't even talk to me in the car most of the time. We just drove around. And then I, I proved myself, and then we ended up with a good relationship, and I ended up I, I go to his house for family dinner. I got to know his wife and his kids and, and things were better. But the initial part was, you know, I was thinking, oh, I've been on the job two years, you know, I'm a veteran now. And, <laughs> you know, and, and, and um, to him, I was his rookie. And uh, till the day he died, he called mm -hmm. me. Rookie. And you, you live with nicknames like that. And, and uh, if, well, as, as a paramedic, anybody I trained is my rookie now. So it kind of gets passed down the line and you, you pass it on. Um, and initially I took it as, you know, he's being mean to me saying rookie. And then afterwards I realized it was more term of endearment is probably wrong. Um, but he didn't mean it in, a, in as horrible a way as I thought it was. And Absolutely. he opened my back. There was no question in my mind that he would always have my back on stuff. And so he taught me that as well. Oh, I love that. Yeah, sometimes there's, there are always, in the struggle, there are always these silver linings that we don't always see initially, huh? I love that. Yeah. Tell me about taking the bus when you were about to, so we know you're voracious <laughs> and you like, you like crime or mystery or stuff like, like you're drawn to that from a super young age. Was that because of what your mom was reading to you or was that completely on your own? No, I suppose it probably was because we, we still read the same things and, and exchange books back and forth. So uh, we read John Grissom. Uh, she likes uh, Clive Cussler, um, Michael Connolly. So the books are, you know, still going back and forth uh, between us. So, yeah, so when I was, um, well, elementary age, so I don't know, like grade four-ish, I think, um, I was reading comics, and uh, close to downtown was a used comic store, and it was, I don't know, 35, 40 minutes by bus ride, 
And uh, I took the bus down at 11 years old and I would take my, the comics that I had read down and even, and Hardy Boys as well. And I would trade them in at the bookstore and get my whatever it was, dollar and 17 cent credit. Um, then I would go to the, the shelves and pick out new comics and, and later on, you know, the Hardy Boys. And then I would head back home. And, and so what mom had done was uh, she made me a lunch, bag lunch. And so when I got back on the bus to come home, I would eat my bag lunch and I would start reading reading my comic books, which was maybe not the best idea because I think there was times I had pretty much gone through them by the time I got home. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, I'll take the bus back down right now because I'm out. But yeah, and I, and I did that frequently. So through the summer, I would, I would probably go twice a week down to the used bookstore and turn them in and then head back home and read. What a great memory. I have memory. It's so different now. I want to jump in here and ask you a related question. How do you feel about the Kindle? or the nook or things like that? I go back and forth. Um, I certainly like the, I ease, the ease of Kindle. Right. Um, I mean, I still, I still like to have a, a book in my hand and certainly um, you're in a warmer climate than I am. Um, even in summer here, you can probably use a Kindle outside, but uh, we try in the winters to do a nice warm vacation somewhere. And I find that the Kindle kind of gets too hot too quick. And I would yeah. prefer just to have a book anyway, you're by the pool or whatever. So on vacations, absolutely. I, I take books. Um, some of my favorite, favorite authors um, come up with books in the fall. So they're, I always ask for them for Christmas and then I save them until we go on vacation. So I have, have books to read. Um, but Kindle's kind of easy when you finish a book to go, oh, I need something else to read and go on to Kindle. And I'm reading, uh, I lucked out. So I was told about a, an author, his name's Peter James. He's an English writer, um, writes crime. And I went on to Kindle and his first 10 books were together in a bundle uh, for $30. Mm -hmm. Okay, $3 book, that's 10. I can have that in my bank whenever I need it. Well, he's so darn good that I'm on the fourth book now and, and haven't slowed down reading him. So it does make it easy. I, I'm a night reader. Okay. So if uh, it's 11.30 at night, I'm still not tired and I finished a book, it's pretty easy to find something else to read for another half hour. Yeah. But I do like hardcover still. Me too. And there's a smell in a bookstore that you just can't, especially the older leather books, you know, that just so good it's so good but i also love I, like i couldn't possibly have as many books as i have on my kindle i i would need so many shelves so i'm really grateful that we can do it that way and i choose wisely the ones the, the books that i purchase that i want to hold in my hand but yeah, yeah much different world from back in trading comic books and stuff like that because that was yeah. a big deal for me too yeah yeah, and uh, I mean, I think some of the, some of the Hardy Boy books, I, I wished I'd hung on to them. Yeah, <clears throat> I went to a bookstore a year ago, and a used Hardy Boy book was like seventeen dollars, and uh, and it was a recent edition. The, the editions that I got had kind of a brown cover on them; they weren't even a in color cover. Yeah. I think they were either they were early fifties. I think fifty four to fifty six was the copyright date in in a lot of them. Should have hung on to those. Yeah, if we only knew, who would have thought that that you know that that would be a thing? My husband's got a collection of comic books, not a lot of them, but man, you know, you don't breathe wrong on those. You just oh, yeah. the baseball well, cards, you don't breathe wrong. Yeah, and I, I, you know, a lot of the ones that are worth a lot of money now were ones that that I read, the Flash versus Superman, and mm -hmm. and a few of the Batman, but. I mean, I read them, they were dog-eared. So even if I had kept them, um, they wouldn't be worth a lot of money because I read and abused and traded them with friends back and forth, but it'd still be cool to kind of still have those. Yeah, no kidding. So now I want to jump up in time a little bit into, you continue, you're voraciously a reader. I have always been, and I love that when you can instill that into your own kids too. So the kids of mine that really love to read, it's so fun. It's so fun the direction that they go. You can learn anything. I mean, I think once you learn how to read and you realize the whole world is open to you, you can find anything. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that then reading becomes very exciting. So high school, you get into high school and keep taking me on because you had to transition at some point to your love of reading to writing. Yeah, well, so in high school, <clears throat> I liked writing satire. Um, okay. and, and so I, I kind of wrote Saturday Night Live stuff before there was Saturday Night Live. So I think Saturday Night Live started in about 1974. And in 1972, I was, I was writing spoof stuff. And for some reason, I could look at something and see the funny side to it or the satire side to it. So a lot of my writing, I wish I had it, a lot of my writing in high school was, was along those lines. Um, the side was also in social studies class, I liked writing reports. So yeah, I read that. The, the writing that. was just there. Um, right. Totally different style of writing, but that came into play later too. Um, with the with the paramedic textbooks because yeah. it, that's more technical writing research writing so that came into play so high school uh, you know I wrote fun stuff and then pretty much right away I was in the police department and then uh, you're writing reports and I look at some of my reports and my notes and I go okay for a guy who thought he was a writer you, you write pretty bad reports <laughs> and your notes are pretty bad um and then the writing thing disappeared with, with um, profession, with family. Um, I kept reading, though, still voraciously reading. Uh, then I guess probably into uh, Tom Clancy was, was a favorite for mm -hmm. a number of years. His, his thick tomes on, uh, you know, 80 pages on the running, how a nuclear submarine works and, and things like that. Um, and then, you know... Um, 2010 was a big change in my life. Um, my marriage of 25 years fell apart. And uh, that was in the spring. In the spring, I was coaching football. So that kind of um, kept me busy. And then in the fall, I was coaching football. And uh, in early October 2010, I don't know, I guess I was self-aware enough, which surprises me because I have trouble writing emotion. But somehow I was self-aware enough that when football was over, winter was coming, um, I'd be alone with my thoughts and that might not be yeah. such a good idea. And um, I do my best thinking in the shower. And so as I remember it, I was in the shower the one morning for whatever reason, thinking about that, got out of the shower and thought, maybe you should do some writing. And so I went to work, I Googled writing classes. There was one that started the next week so I thought, well, this must be, must be what's supposed to happen. I signed up for it and went to the class. And um, there were eight of us in the class, seven ladies and me, uh, <laughs> instructor. And then uh, we were to write a, a piece and circulate it to the whole class and the instructor for reading. And I had no clue why I put up my hand because generally I'm a sit in the back of the class kind of guy. You don't notice me. I'm not volunteering for anything. And for some reason, I said, oh, sure, I'll write something and submit it. Uh, so I did. And I picked a story that was, was from Calgary history, a day, kind of a dark day in the history of the police department, December uh, 20th, 1974. A gunman was holed up in a garage that had an oil pit in it. So he was down low, but the police didn't know this. And he's shooting at the police out from the garage, and they're shooting in. Nothing like this had ever happened in Calgary, so, so there were no protocols. Essentially, guys went home, cops went home and got their hunting rifles and came back, and cases of ammunition were passed around. Uh, five officers were injured and one was killed in this incident. So, um, again, for some reason, I had kept the newspaper clippings from that incident. So through all my many moves through college, police training, different houses, I had kept that information. So I had the references. So I wrote the story. I put my own kind of fictional spin on it and then gave it to the class. And I was just terrified. I'm thinking, oh my, the poor ladies in this class, they're reading about me, writing about shooting and, and guys getting injured. And um, anyway, um, they all loved it. They all loved it. And, but the interesting thing was they felt sorry for the bad guy. And so the way I had written the bad guy, um, they connected with him and felt the cops were just kind of all the same. 
that not, no one kind of stood out, even though I did have a main character who was supposed to stand out, um, but didn't, but it was the bad guy who stood out. And, I, and to this day, I still, still get comments and I think I do write the bad guys better than I, I do the good mm. guys. And I don't know what that says about me or the, <laughs> the evil side of Dwayne. Um, and then the funny part was though, my instructor said, oh yeah, it's, it's a well-written piece um, but it reads like a policy manual. Oh, shocking. Because at this point, you had already written the, the pharmacology. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that makes sense. So that was, um, I guess, a bit of a revelation. And, and that was, but it was great she said that because then I had to change my thinking. I had to change from do this, do this, do this, do this, to just telling the story. Much so that, different. that took a number of years. I, I took writing classes for the next five years, um, worked on crisis point, worked on crisis point, worked on crisis point. There's part of me now that looks back and says, you know, that one probably should have just gone in the desk drawer and I should have gone on to another story because I did put up many years into that story. And I was kind of ready to give up in about uh, uh, 2015. Um, I just wasn't sure what to do. I I kind of felt my um, my writing biological clock was ticking. Okay. Thinking, okay. You know what? People had told me that if you get a publisher, um, well, you got to get an agent. You'll probably be with an agent for a year. If they get you a contract, that'll sit with the publisher for two years or more before it's published. And I started counting up the years and I'm thinking, okay, well, at least my kids hopefully will be rich when I die and these books finally get published or something. So I was trying to decide whether I would independent publish or maybe even just quit and I had uh, sent Crisis Point into the Crime Writers of Canada competition and they had an award for the best unpublished novel and I had I kind of even forgot that I had applied about it um, a friend told me to apply I really didn't even know what I was applying to I sent it in and was totally shocked well the word I use is gobsmacked when my name was announced as a finalist. So final five in Canada for the award. So I went down to Toronto for the award ceremony. And, and to me, it was kind of like, you know, attending the Academy Awards. Um, the, the room was full. It wasn't a huge room. There's maybe 110, 120 people in their tops. Um, but it was just, it was just cool to be there. And so that reinvigorated my writing. Um, I didn't win. I did hear afterwards, somebody told me that I came in second. So, um, so that was good. That gave me a little more in, incentive to keep going. And then I did decide that I was going to independently publish myself and Crisis Point was published in 2018. So it was my first novel. How great. Okay, so you had, if I jump back a little bit, you had the police force paramedic, some years as a firefighter, a 25-year marriage that ended, and then all of your writing for the technical man. I mean, like you took a lot and put it all together for this. Yeah, I I, I had a wonderful career. I mean, I, I yeah. had so many opportunities to do so many different things that it's, it's just it's perfect for writing now. It's I, perfect for writing. Yes. I'm not saying I know everything about everything. I do spend lots of time on, on Google checking facts and that sort of thing. But as yeah. far as what actually happens on the streets, yeah, I've got that, that, that nailed down. Tell me a little bit about submitting crisis. So you've gotten all of this it, and it's really interesting. I guess I, I'm just a little bit fascinated by the fact that you, one of the things that's more difficult is tapping into the emotion. Mm -hmm. I don't think that that's uncommon, but you're picking some pretty emotional uh, subject matter in your fiction books. So yeah. that that's a tough thing to get. Um, tell me about submitting Crisis Point. No, I know you won the award, mm -hmm. but what about when you receive feedback from a pitch to support? to submit it as a um, manuscript. You were still thinking publishing house at that point. Yeah, yeah, I was. And, and uh, I knew nothing about pitches, um, but I've always been a, I've been a public speaker. So as, as a paramedic, I spoke at uh, uh, paramedic conferences all across North America for 30 years. And so, I mean, pick a place, Baltimore, Washington, 
California, Texas. I mean, I went to all these. I was kind of on the EMS circuit. So public speaking was no problem. And talking about my work is, is no problem. And, you know, we could go on for four hours and I probably wouldn't shut up on it. Um, so I didn't even know there was a thing as pitching. I was walking around the exhibit hall in 2010, actually, when I was at this uh, writer's conference, trying to, you know, learning what this was all about, looking at the books. And um, there was a, a guy who represented a, a publishing company and we just got talking. Um, and it wasn't about me making a pitch or anything, but he asked me questions and I, I talked about my background and talked about the book. And uh, I can't remember his exact words, but it, you know, it was along the lines of, you got a very interesting background. If you put that into a book, that'd be worth looking at. So send it to me. I thought, oh, wow, this is great. So I, I sent it to him and I was just waiting for the feedback on it, thinking, oh, this is great. I was you know, figuring out who was gonna be in the movie version of it and maybe it'd be a TV series and, and stuff like that. Um, and then the feedback came back and uh, he kind, of, he kind of said, you know, you got, you got the bones of a story here. It's not quite right yet. I'm not really sure to, how to help you on it. Um, it's kind of like there's a police show on the TV in the other room and you don't care. <gasps> so that would have oh, been wow. about September 2012. And so I stopped writing. And so I didn't look at, at Crisis Point. I didn't take any more writing classes. And I really just dropped it. And I thought that just, that just devastated me. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm okay with, with feedback. You know, I was in a profession where, you know, if you didn't follow the right steps, you definitely got feedback and stronger than feedback. In no uncertain terms, you were told you had screwed up. Um, but that, that was just a gut punch, just a gut punch, probably the emotional state I was in sort of thing that writing was what was the glue that was still holding me together. Right. Um, and then it just got knocked out of me. So I didn't do anything. And then a couple, couple of friends who we'd had a writing group and they just said, no, you can't stop. You can't stop. You can't stop. Forget that. We've looked at your stuff. We like your stuff. We're helping you make it better. So keep going. So they, they pulled me away from the cliff and, and in January, and then I signed up for another writing class, and, and then I kept going and I kept working on it. But, um, and I don't know, I don't think, I don't really, well, I don't know. I don't think he wrote it to be mean. Mm -hmm. I think he just wrote it, you know, and they say never write an email in anger. <laughs> um, not that he was angry, but I think he just wrote down what he was thinking and sent it yeah. and really didn't look at what it was he had sent or or um when he met me he thought i was more together than i was i was putting on a good act of being okay and didn't realize that something like that would devastate me so um so so yeah so now when uh, when i'm helping somebody um editing stuff for them i take great pains um to mm. make sure that i find good things about the story and if i'm gonna say something that needs to be corrected I'm going to coach it in a way that I'm not just taking their knees out from under them. Yeah. You, know, you might want to consider blah, 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 and back up what I've said. So not just say, I'm not sure how to fix this. Uh, I'll, I'll find a way I'll find a website that they can, they can read and refer to, or um, you know, somebody else's writing. There's, there's lots of great um, books that, to help writers. Um, yeah. Stephen King has written a book on writing that has great tips in it. So, um, yeah. So I take that that devastation I felt, and boy, I'm going to make sure I don't do that to anybody. Tell me about your biological writing clock, because that's really, I mean, that sounds funny to me. But why did you why did you feel so much pressure? Well, um, I'm 62. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I mean, I, I hope I keep writing till I'm 80. And I don't see any reason uh, why I couldn't because I, uh, I got story on top of story on top of story. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that's going to be an issue. But um, I guess I needed, I needed that book in my hand. Mm. If I had kept writing, 
and I was four or five stories into it and I still hadn't ever published one. I just don't think I would have continued. Um, it wasn't necessarily immediate gratification from a book, but I, I, I kind of needed that validation, I guess. So, so in 2015, being nominated for the award to me was a validation of my peers that my writing was on track. Right. Um, and so then just, just looking at, well, I guess the other thing is I did have an agent for over a year. Okay. And after, after 2015, I had an agent uh, from the Arthur Ellis Awards. An agent was there and gave me her card. Um, and so after 37 rejections, yeah, yeah, um, I just thought, okay, so we've taken, you know, almost two years now. So from 2015 up into 2017 now, I still don't have Crisis Point published and no prospects. Um, and 37 rejections. Like the first one was a definite gut punch, but getting yeah. 37, that's, I really want people to hear that because um, there's nothing wrong with going that route of publishing, but that it is so difficult. And that doesn't mean that your book isn't fantastic and you self-publish it. No. Well, that, that was the thing that, um, not that I want any more bad feedback on my writing, but most of the feedback was good. Um, obviously knows, um, knows what he's writing about. Um, the plot was solid, love the characters. And then there would always be a tagline at the end. Um, we're, we're not taking any crime novels at this time. Um, we don't do crime novels. Um, we are, we have novels for the next two years, consider submitting in a year. So most of the comments were, were complimentary. And it was, it was almost like, part of me wished they had said it was terrible. Right. Um, it was hard for them, hard when they said, hey, it's great, but we're not going to take it. Hey, it's right. really good, we're not going to take it. And you just look through these comments and you go, well, what the heck do I have to do? And of course, you know, the feedback isn't deep enough to tell you what you need to do different. So it's, it's really just a polite rejection. Right. And so you look at it and you go, well, I don't even know what I need to do different. And during that time, I mean, my editor had or my agent had suggested things to change and she had read it and gone through and I'd made those changes. And then I hired an editor okay. and went through it and then we resubmitted. Um, so I thought I was doing all the things I needed to do to make it stronger, um, but I, I couldn't convince uh, an acquisition editor or, or a publisher of that. But, but now um, I've, got, I've got the three in the series out. The fourth one comes out in a couple of weeks and I have, I have great fans. They, they send me emails saying, Hey, um, I hate you. I had to read till one o'clock to finish the novel. It was great. And I've had people, when I've been on Facebook, I've had people send me a message saying, what are you doing on Facebook? I'm waiting for your next book. You should be writing. So, so people do like the books. And, and so that's a great uh, reward, great satisfaction in that. And I was thinking, okay, so why didn't these publishers see the potential in this? Right. Now you, so you went through that two years, you tried to go that route with all of that. I mean, I know they were saying this is good, but we're not accepting it. And you're right. It's so hard. Like, just tell me why, mm -hmm. the why not the, okay. I always felt like, I don't need you to tell me nice things. That's it's great. But like, I want you to tell me how to make things better. Yeah. And that's frustrating. What made you decide to just basically bite the bullet and go the self-publishing route after all you've got a lot of years invested in this at this point and you did that in 2018 so tell me about that process and deciding that yeah I think um I just it wasn't going anywhere with the editor mm -hmm. and uh like I said um it, it was publish or quit really is probably where I was at I I had outlaw written so I had a second book written oh wow okay and, but it was, I need to, I need, just need to get this one out. I need to, to go to the printers and pick up 10 boxes of books. And I just needed to hold that in my hand to keep yeah. me going. And so I took the plunge on that and, and then people liked it. I, I got good feedback in hindsight. I don't think I'm supposed to say this. Um, Crisis point probably isn't my best writing. Um, hopefully, I got better as I went along. So Outlaw was better than Crisis Point. Wolfman is better. Um, my new book, Speargrass, uh, People Write. A friend of my mom's, who was a, a elementary school teacher, I didn't have her as a teacher, but I knew her. She's a big fan. 
and and she always she gives me positive feedback and so i know people like the books but i wouldn't have this excitement today if i hadn't gone ahead and published crisis oh a hundred percent and you have kids mm -hmm. okay yep. i have kids so i can with all honesty tell you that when you publish your first book and you i remember picking up the box right you went and picked up the box yeah. and you can't wait to open it and you pick it up and it is the most unbelievable feeling it is the closest to having a child because and i'm a mom i i did the giving birth so i can absolutely tell you that it is a very very close second to that because you pour your heart and soul and years most of the time into this yeah. first one especially and it is unbelievably emotional and overwhelming when you hold that first copy. Oh yeah, yeah. I was just, I was, I was just giddy. I was just like, it, it was Christmas. It was birthday. It was every oh. celebration all in one. And I, and I was just holding it in front of me like this. I was just and shaking. I was just looking at it. There it is. There it is. There it is. I did it. Yeah. yeah, it's a, it's an incredible, I, I know I published my first book and I was like, holy cow, 85% of people that want to publish books don't, I want to help all the people that, you know, yeah. I, I had such a passion in me as a voracious reader, but also as a writer, and you really want to be able to help people and you can do that yeah. through your speaking and stuff. So you yeah. did that one and it was successful. And now you've got this entire series going. Is it all the same series? Do you have to read the first one to read the others? It, it is a series and you should. Yeah. So, so Crisis Point will give you the background on the character Brad Coulter. Um, Outlaw, the second one, mm -hmm. is again about Brad Coulter, um, but you could start there and you would be okay. You would still you know, get enough of his background. There's a little bit going back into Crisis Point talking about it. Um, but in Outlaw, there's a character, his name is Jeter Wolf, he's a biker. And as I said, I do bad guys better. And Jeter Wolf is a despicable, horrible person. So when Outlaw came out, I was getting emails from people saying, you had the chance to kill him. Why didn't you kill him? We hate him. He's, you just should have killed him. So instead, I brought him back for revenge in the third book, Wolfman is Back. So you could skip Crisis Point. You could start with Outlaw, but you really need to hate Jeter Wolf before you go to Wolfman to really yeah. appreciate how bad he is and what a nasty character he is. I want to talk about your progression also because writing is really tough. And there's a difference between being a writer and being an author, where it's more of your career as an author, where I'm more of a writer. And it's something I do on the side that I love. And so there is a differentiation because you went from a writer who wanted to publish to an author. And um, it's almost painful. Like Hemingway says, you just sit at the typewriter and bleed, right? I mean, it's like legitimately painful. But when you become an author, there's a different drive inside of you. And you've written books in relatively rapid succession. So yeah. You held that copy in your hands for the first time, and then what? Like you went, you've got like your seventh book written, correct? Um, I'm halfway through my seventh book. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. How did how did that process happen for you? When did you arrive to decide that that was your career path and not just something you liked? Yeah. So uh, let me think. Time frame. Shortly after, uh, in 2018, after Crisis Point came out. Um, I decided, yeah, I think this is it. Then when Outlaw came out um, the next year, 2019, then, then that was it. I was going to move full speed ahead. Um, I had ideas for stories. Um, I was ready to go. Um, the big thing was in, in 2018, I went to a writing conference in Vancouver, BC, um, and I went to a session. I was speaking there, but I went to some sessions as well. Mm -hmm. The one session was a panel on what's the best writing advice you ever received. Okay. And on the panel was an author by the name of Jonas Saul. And paraphrasing everything for time-wise, essentially he said, writing your manuscript is great because few people do that, but it kind of means nothing. Getting your first book published, as you said, few people do, it kind of means nothing. 
You have to keep writing books because we are in a binge society. We're in a Netflix society. We're in a fast food society where I drive through and get it. So if people find your book, my book, Crisis Point, and they go, hey, it's great. What else do you have? And I say, I don't have anything else. They might wait the year or they might move on to somebody else and totally forget about me. So my drive right now is, is to get the momentum going so that I do have books going that people can read. So there's three crisis point right now. The fourth one will come out in November. The fifth one will come out next March. It's, it's in final edit right now. So I'm ahead of it. Wow. Spirit, totally different series came out in uh, the summer. Uh, it's getting good reviews too. So I'll write a sequel to that. So I guess, you know, what keeps me going is people want to read it, I guess. I mean, I want to write it. I've got stories to tell. They right. like the way I tell the stories. And I, now I don't want to let them down. I mean, when the, truly when people, you know, email on Facebook or message me on Facebook saying, hey, stop goofing off. We're waiting for your story. That's, you know, okay. Yep, you're right. Um, I'll stop. Yeah. Or I, I want to get back to writing. I... Uh, yeah, I, I hate being interrupted when I'm on a roll. Oh my um, gosh, that's the worst. That's got to be the worst thing. Yeah. So on the, the advice, the other advice Jonas gave me is, is you know, because I'm, I'm doing this full time now, is that you need to set goals each day. He has a goal of 5,000 a day, which I think is, is wow. incredible. I'm more of a 2,500 to 3,000. But if I'm on a roll, I've done a couple of 6,000 word days. Um, yeah. Just because it was it was all flowing. And so I think by having the goal and whether it's 100 words a day or 250 or 750 or whatever it is, by having daily goals, it keeps you in the story. And yeah. then you know, when you're shopping, maybe you think about it or you see something and it makes it easier than if you're coming in and out of writing the story. But 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 life gets in the way, too. I mean, you know, if you have family and you have a job. It, it makes it tougher. But I, I think if you have these, even if they're tiny goals, we'll just keep yep. in the story. And then eventually, it'll, it, you know, it's like exercise. Everybody hates exercise. And when you get away from it for a few months or a year, those first three weeks getting back into it are horrible. You don't want to make the drive. You don't want to change clothes. You don't want to, have to shower afterwards, all those things. And then after three weeks, you wake up before your alarm clock in the morning because you want to get there. And I think it's right. the same with writing, that setting, you know, a goal of 250 words a day for three weeks. Once you get that three weeks, you'll go, oh, 250 is easy. I can do right. something. Oh, I can do a thousand. The best advice I ever got is 30 minutes. So it wasn't even a word yeah. count. It was just yeah. a time. Same thing with exercising. Yeah. Just almost everybody has 30 minutes in their day if it's a priority just like exercise so but the same thing and then you'll realize that two hours has gone by let it happen yeah right yeah 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 just let it go i mean I, sometimes i think my characters are writing the story I'm, I'm just there to type it their voices are going in my head or i know my characters now and especially in the series i know what brad Coulter's going to do right. so i don't have to think about how he'll react i just keep going because, and I know what he'll say to his partner. I know what he'll say to a sergeant. Right. I love how voracious you were about the Hardy boys and that you're giving your readers that same, you're giving that to them now so that they can be voracious in your story. I love yeah. that. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Dwayne, thank you so much for being on. It was truly a pleasure. Well, this was a lot of fun. Thank you.